Ethos. If you'd like to eat well, then I think you're going to like my guest today, Mark Schatzker. He's the author of a book that changed my life and thinking about food. It's called The Dorito Effect. And it takes a look at how all the fake flavors in our food fool our brains into thinking we're eating something we're not, and that wreaks havoc on our health. Well, Mark has a new book that's equally, if not more profound. It's called The End of Craving, Recovering the Lost Wisdom of Eating Well. This is the Next Simple Step Podcast. I'm Paul Goldsmith. When it comes to eating well and dieting, it seems like it's a never-ending struggle for most of us. There's this raging debate, which is better, low carbs, low fat, doesn't matter. seems like diets don't work in the long run for the vast majority of us, but we keep trying. They say if you want better answers, you need to ask better questions. So Mark, for someone who wants to eat well and maintain a healthy weight in relationship to food, what's a better question than low fat versus low carb? I think the question we need to ask is how does our brain think about eating? We think eating is kind of under executive control. Like I can decide how many calories I'm going to eat the same way I can decide what outfit to put on in the morning. And it really doesn't work that way. The brain controls body weight, just like it controls your blood pressure, your heart rate. And, you know, this is counterintuitive to like, well, why do we always say we can go on a diet? But we know this is true because when you go on a diet, the diet doesn't work. It works at the beginning, but then six months in, eight months in, the weight comes back. It's not because you're a loser. It's not because you failed. It's because your brain intervened, works the other way. When scientists do overfeeding studies, when they put people in a lab environment and stuff them full of food, the opposite thing happens. Food becomes awful. They can't stand eating. They don't seem to gain as much weight as they should. And when the study ends, they lose the weight. So your brain is in control. We need to talk about how the brain thinks about eating and food. Well, let's do that because my brain tells me I'm hungry. And so why do I continue to crave food and sometimes eat more than I should? That's a great question because this doesn't make sense from an evolutionary point of view. Calories are scarce in nature. That doesn't mean we're wired to overconsume them. In fact, it really makes no sense because when you put on extra weight, it takes more calories to power that body. So from an evolutionary point of view, why would this happen? And you made a good observation. You say, why am I hungry? Why do I sometimes crave food? This is important because that's what we see when we look at the brain scans of people with obesity. It's not that they enjoy food more. And that's the stigma that they lose themselves. They don't know when enough is enough. They crave food more. So the central question to ask and what this book was really concerned with is what would cause an intelligent brain to crave more food than it needs? And that brought me to something called nutritive mismatch. But before I get into that, I'll just say this is the big change in food. We've been fighting a war about carbs and fat. Carbs and fat haven't changed. They're the same as they've always been. We consume too much of those macronutrients. What changed is the taste and flavor of food. This is sensory information that your brain gathers about food as you eat. We think of it as like frivolous, it's flavor, it's taste. It is absolutely connected to nutrition. And that is how food has changed the most profoundly in the last 50 years. Okay. I love this. You talked about something to do with your senses and there's a great study you cite in The End of Craving. It's a great analogy to how our body's relationship with temperature is directly analogous to our sensory perception of food. Yes. So I want to talk about, the, the, there was a study done at Yale where a professor named Dana Small was trying to see, is it possible that we can create beverages that are as rewarding, but contain fewer calories? So it was really interesting. She created five beverages, all taste equally sweet. She used an artificial sweetener called sucralose, but each drink had a different payload of calories, went from zero all the way to 148, but they all tasted like they had about 75 calories of sugar. 
Well, she expected, you know, her subjects drank each drink. The brain grew to know what these drinks. And she thought the drink with the most calories will get the biggest brain response because, hey, we like calories, right? Turned out it was the 75 calorie drink. The next thing that happens is even more interesting. She puts her subjects in what's called an indirect calorimeter. This measures the thermic effect of food. This measures the energy it takes to start metabolizing food. The textbooks say the more calories, the bigger the thermic effect. So one day, subject comes in, drinks the 75-calorie drink, nice little plume of heat. Comes in a few days later, drinks the 140-calorie drink. Well, you'd think there should be a bigger plume of heat. There's no plume of heat. What's going on? There is no metabolic response. And she has this insight that this what's going on, the brain that generated the biggest brain response had 75 calories, tasted like it had 75 calories. Mm. The brain that got the biggest metabolic response had 75 calories, tasted like it had 75 calories. When that relationship goes out of sync, when the flavor and the taste no longer matches the nutritional payload, the system gets messed up. So we think that taste and flavor is frivolous. It takes us to a bad place. It is absolutely essential to nutrition and metabolism. This is information your brain is gleaning from food that is entering the body. And that is what we've changed with so many technologies, artificial sweeteners, fat replacers, fake flavors, modified starches. So much of what we do to food when we process it is we mess up the brain's ability to predict the nutrition that is entering the body. This is stuff you're putting in your system. Well, most dietitians would say, obviously, if you want to lose weight, you need a calorie deficit, right? And if you want to gain weight, you need an intake of more calories. But you're saying the larger issue here isn't the number of calories. The issue that you're identifying is the mismatch. Your brain is not reading the information correctly because you're using some artificial sweetener that is telling your brain you're getting more calories than you actually are. Yes. And then, and I think the dietitians are right to some degree, but it's a description. Like, like, yeah, you do gain weight when you eat more calories, but there's something behind that. There's a wizard behind the curtain that makes you eat those calories and that's your brain. So let's get back to this thing called nutritive mismatch when the calories don't match the perception of calories. Well, what does your brain do? This causes what's called uncertainty. The brain experiences reward prediction error. It thought it was going to get something and it didn't get that. What does the brain do? This is a classic psychological response. We see an excess of motivation. The brain works hard. It doesn't like getting ripped off. It says, I thought I was getting calories and I didn't get them. So I got to work harder to get them. It makes sense. If I told you that the gas gauge in your car didn't work, might be a full tank, might be empty, You'd fill it all the time. You'd be like, I don't want to run out of gas. That would be a disaster. I don't know what's in there. So I'm just going to, I'm going to fill it more often because if I ran out of gas, that would be a total disaster. I'd be late for my meeting. I'd have to pay to get the car towed. Well, your brain cares a lot about energy. It gets all this information that doesn't make sense anymore. It wants to eat more. And that's just what we see. We look at the brain scans. It's not that this food is too delicious. It's that people want to eat too much food. Okay. That is interesting to me because you really break down. You're not against good tasting food. In fact, the opposite. You're encouraging us to gain more pleasure from our food, but junk food is pleasurable, isn't it? Well, that's a really interesting point because I, I wrote a book called The Dorito Effect. Yep. And I think it's important. We really need to understand the nature of pleasure when we talk about food because it's not one thing. There's two distinct but connected neural circuits. 
One of them runs on the neurotransmitter called dopamine. A lot of people have heard of it. It's involved with drugs and so forth. We used to think that was the pleasure neurotransmitter. We don't think that anymore. Dopamine is the wanting brain chemical. Dopamine is desire at its most intense. It is craving. It is what draws us to things in the world that we require. But then when we eat food, when we put it in our mouth and there's this plume of liking. Well, that is called liking. That runs on opioid neurotransmitters. And it's a very different feeling. And what I would say junk food does is it really plays on the wanting system. If you think about Doritos or if I think about fast food, these foods aren't consumed in a state of kind of reverie. We eat them quickly. We put them in our mouth. And the next thought we have is I want to put another one in my mouth. We literally stuff our faces. We've all been in that situation at a party where you're like, I just ate so many Doritos or potato chips, but you'd never say like, oh my God, I had the most fantastic potato chips at this party last night. It's completely gone. You only want them while you're eating them. But then when you think of foods that truly pleasure you, we can all remember an incredible steak we might've had Mm. or an absolutely wonderful peach or just an incredible tomato that you got out of your grandmother's garden. These are foods that not only nourish the body, they nourish your mind. They deliver pleasure on an elemental level. And it's a different experience. These kind of wanting-based foods really speed things up. You're kind of agitated. You want to stuff your face. Foods that give you pleasure, they slow things down. If you Mm. think of something like red wine or dark chocolate, it would be insane to pour a glass of a fine red wine and chug it. Nobody would. I mean, this would be the kind of thing you see in comedy movies. The same with dark chocolate. You can't eat it quickly. It forces you to contemplate what you're eating. So I think it's important that when we understand pleasure when it comes to food, there's two different kinds. And I think there's a better pleasure, this liking pleasure that certain foods give us and many modern foods don't give us. And so you're talking about the difference between being insatiable and the, the marketers of chips, for example, they don't deny the fact I bet you can't eat just one, <laughs> right? They the lean last into thing that. they would want would be a potato chip that, you know, where it took Face three to chips. absolutely satisfy you. That would be a right. disaster. Yeah. And you've had your fill with three chips. You'd take forever to get through a bag. I think that's really important to draw the distinction between the craving, which is why your book's called End of Craving, and actually savoring your food. And you tell the story of the difference between Americans and Northern Italians. It's stark, the difference in just our health, right? So the the obesity rate in America is about 42%. And in Northern Italy, it's what, eight? It's less than eight. And I, I, I mean, I can't stress this enough because we have such a crisis relationship with food. Food nourishes us, but it's become this poison. And we think it's kind of like you're either going to starve or eat yourself to death, but there's no happy medium. Well, let's look at Northern Italy. They don't eat a Mediterranean diet in Northern Italy. That's more in Southern Italy. They are on a superficial look. By a superficial look, they are food obsessed in Northern Italy. In the city of Bologna, which is a One of the epicenters of of Italian culinary culture, although really the whole country is one giant epicenter of incredible eating. But in Bologna, that's where bologna comes from. Some people call it bologna. They call it mortadella there. And it's got, you can see these cubes of white fat. They're not afraid of fat there. In the Chamber of Commerce, they have a repository of official recipes. This is (laughs) is like the Ten Commandments of recipes. Thou shalt make the tortellini this way and only this way. This is how you make tagliatella alla bolognese, which is their classic meat sauce. And their favorite noodle, the tagliatella, they actually have it cast in gold. It is like the platonic pure achievement of noodle perfection to which all other noodles 
trying to imitate. They have it in gold. You'd think if it was truly delicious food that was our enemy, they would be the plumpest in the world. Right. And they are astonishingly thin, less than 8%. And it's not going up. It's been holding steady mm. for decades. So Italy tells us something really important, which is that you literally can have your cake and eat it too. Mm. And it gives us such hope that we don't have to have a fraught relationship with food, that it can give us pleasure. It can be healthy. We can love it and we can live well. Okay. Well, that's really encouraging. So you point to this nutritional mismatch when we have processed food. There's our first problem because we're sending mixed signals to our brain and we're not actually getting the number of calories that our brain is believing we are. And we keep craving these foods that are non-nutritious. So if we actually savor real food, that is part of the key. So what is a simple step someone can take? I mean, that's not new. You should eat healthy food. Where do you start? Yeah, it's a really good question. Well, I'd say the first thing people should do is stop trying to fool your brain. So I would say avoid foods that have, I guess you'd call them technological additives that are designed to fool your brain. Artificial sweeteners. Another one is fat replacers. Now this gets tricky. No label says this contains fat replacers. They're actually designed in such a way to not really show up on the ingredient panel. There's one called Simplest, that's the industry term, which is a micro-particulated protein, tiny little balls of protein that stimulate a nerve in your mouth and make you think this is rich and fatty, but in fact, it's not. If that shows up in the ingredient panel, you'll see it as something like milk protein or whey protein. So that sounds kind of like it's like cheese, something that came off the farm, when it's really something quite more sophisticated that is intended to have an effect on your brain. There's another one called Cream Fiber 7000. This mm. is the brand name in the world of food manufacturing. It's a fat replacer designed for muffins. And on the ingredient panel, you see it as citrus fiber, which to me sounds like it's healthy. It's like roughage, good for your microbiome. It would never make you think that this is an additive that's been deployed to create the illusion of calories. So how do you avoid these things? Well, eat real food. I would say avoid things like light and diet. Don't necessarily look for the lowest calories on the ingredient panel. Look for the shortest list on the nutritional info panel. But here's the other thing. People have been saying for years, eat real food. Right. So many people who, who investigate this area come to the same conclusion I've come to. What I would say, though, is eat like Italians eat. Eating is not the act of acquiring nutrition. That might be what's going on on a kind of biochemical level. Eating is an immersive act of pleasure. Each meal should be an opportunity to gather the most pleasure you can from food. We should argue about recipes. We should argue about who makes the best tomatoes or the best peaches or the best pastured pork. And every meal should be an opportunity just to indulge and revel in how food ought to be eaten. I saw a study this week that showed the amount of time people in each country spend on eating. It looked to me that Italians spend about twice the amount of time every day consuming food than, than Americans. We created the category of fast food. So that's all about food is fuel. So just get it as fast as possible. And that's actually what's causing the problem. Yeah, no, that's a true statistic. What's even more interesting is not only do they take longer to eat it, they're consuming fewer calories. So it's on the surface, you're like, it'd be like if you and I watched the same movie, but it took you twice as long. You'd be like, what? Like, what's going right. on? But it's, it's because their way of eating, their cultural traditions around food are so different. And it's, I mean, this is like getting back to that wanting versus liking. Mm -hmm. We've had those experiences where, you know, you're, you put the food in your mouth and your next thought is the next bite. And then there's foods that are about the pleasure, about slowing things down, about 
enjoying it as a group. You know, when you eat really good food, it's really annoying. It's unpleasant on some level to have a great meal by yourself. Nobody goes to like a great restaurant solo. You want to bring someone, your partner, a good friend. It's so nice to enjoy food with people and the food makes the relationship better, but the relationship also makes the food better. So I think this whole idea of like food is just about acquiring nutrients and all these like meal replacements people have have designed. I think that is absolutely the wrong direction. Okay. And so you mentioned, this is interesting, and I don't think most of us would think of this. The nutritional mismatch is is just the first part of the problem. But the second part, you have a chapter of the book called When Helping Hurts. (laughs) And so there are certain vitamins that are in our food. You would think vitamins are good. What's going on there? Well, and this is what really drew my attention to Italy. And this goes back a long way and gets to the very root of things. And this was an epidemic. You know, we're dealing with epidemics right now, uh, COVID, but also obesity. Well, there was an epidemic more than a century ago called pellagra. It means rough skin in Italian. And this was a mysterious disease. It started with these skin scales and it would get worse. People would lose their appetite. They would have awful diarrhea. They'd get confused like dementia. Eventually they would die. In 1901, pellagra suddenly appears in Georgia and it starts to spread. Everyone thinks it's an infectious disease. What it was, was a deficiency of vitamin B3 or niacin. And this contributed to our knowledge of micronutrition. It was a landmark moment when we identified the missing thing. It helped us develop the theory of vitamins. Well, it's interesting if you look at how these two cultures responded to pellagra. The United States did what really what you think makes sense. If people need niacin, just put niacin in the food. So Mm -hmm. we passed laws, enrichment laws in the early 1940s that essentially made it the law that grain millers, people who make things like flour and become bread, pasta, donuts, rice, and later corn, corn flour, had to add not only niacin, but riboflavin and thiamine to other B vitamins and iron. Well, it worked magically. I mean, pellagra was just gone almost overnight. And it was such a marvelous instance of a marriage between cutting edge science and public policy. The Italians didn't do that. You think they would, but it was like their nutrition policy was being run by like the king's dim-witted nephew. They said, we should have communal bread ovens. They said, you know, poor people should raise rabbits because it's cheap to raise a rabbit. Some people even said that they should drink wine. And you're just like, what? Like these people are dying of a nutritional deficiency and you say drink wine, but it actually wasn't bad advice because the wine back then was unfiltered had lots of yeast, which is to say lots of niacin. Actually, a pretty good thing to do back then if you got pellagra was drink a glass of Italian wine. Well, the Italian method also worked. It took longer, but Italy literally ate its way out of a nutritional deficiency. Well, let's fast forward the clock. Look at Northern Italy now. Once the epicenter of pellagra, they have this wonderful, amazing relationship with delicious, rich food. They don't pay a heavy price. Look at the American South. Used to be the pellagra belt. Now it's the diabetes belt. Now it's the obesity belt. Did this decision to add vitamins to processed carbs have something to do with it? Well, I would say on a metaphorical level, it absolutely did, because we Italians took the view that pellagra was caused by poverty and people needed access to good food and they could sort it out from there. We said, no, no, there's something wrong with food. So we need to add vitamins to food. And there's something wrong with us. We don't know what's good for us. So we just need to add it into like bread so that everybody gets it, even though hardly anybody actually really had pellagra. Well, then there's a more literal connection because when you look at the B vitamins, you know, we think vitamins are just sort of the pure essence of health Hmm. because they contain the word vital. It's not quite so simple. What What does the B vitamin family do? What do these specific ones do? They are involved in energy metabolism. Hmm. So if you look at these poor Southerners dying of pellagra, what were they eating? They were eating grits, which is to say corn flour, 
pig fat and molasses, fat, carbs, and sugar, an incredibly calorically rich diet. How is it that they were starving? Because calories are metabolically useless without the B vitamins that let us metabolize them. If you can starve by not having enough B vitamins, the opposite is true. If you're going to eat way too many calories, you need a whole bunch of B vitamins. And that's what we've done. And we get the best evidence for this when we look at how we changed the way we raise livestock. If we look in the 1950s, livestock farmers knew if you want to get a big pig, get it big and fat quick, you feed it corn, you feed it soy. But if you, that's all it got, it would get a pig version of pellagra. It would get a nutritional deficiency. So they had to send it out to pasture to eat alfalfa and the like to balance its diet. Well, in come the B vitamins. And now you can just keep that pig penned in, not doing anything, not expending. It's just sitting there eating and it eats its corn and soy and it's got the B vitamins. And all of a sudden the growth rate just takes off. And you can look at the pamphlets that the universities put out in the 1950s that said pigs have a reasonable ability to balance their nutritional needs but there's a new and better way. And that's to feed them this rocket fuel feed of processed carbs with B vitamins. And that changed farming forever. You know, we criticize feedlot farming, confinement farming. That wouldn't have happened without this breakthrough knowledge of vitamins. And so what we did to make pigs get big and fat real quick, we're doing to ourselves. We're adding these vitamins to processed carbs. And lo and behold, we're getting big and fat really quickly. Okay. Well, we didn't get into this overnight. This has been going on for decades. And so it sounds to me like what you're saying is obviously there is no quick fix, but what is a simple step someone who can take, obviously eating real whole foods, but making sure that their food matches calorically and nutritionally, particularly when you're going to buy meat, for example, you don't know what those animals, what vitamins they've been fed and, and that sort of thing. So how do you sort all that out? It's difficult. I mean, it's in North America, it's really hard to get flour that hasn't been enriched. You know, maybe we need a broader conversation about that. So there's more choice available. I think that the best you can do is have a knowledge of where your food's coming from. You can go to a farmer's market. That's great. There are branded programs for meat that tell you if your beef, for example, is grass fed, if your pork has been pastured or not. And it's just taking a keen interest in eating food. I would say that's as close to nature as possible, enjoying it, maximizing the pleasure, not being afraid of food and seeing food as not as the cause of our problem, but as the cure to our problem. Enjoy our food. I mean, who could be against that? And I'm just wondering why there's a million diet books, but I don't see a lot of books like End of Craving. You're very well researched. You've got study after study that kind of points to the science of what you're saying here. And so I'm just wondering what would help us be more informed. Well, I would say what we all want is information. I'm certainly not against it. But the truth is we weren't designed to be nutritionists. We weren't designed to talk about carbs and fat and so forth and calories. We were designed to eat. So I'd say the best new information that's out there is the body of recipes that we have from all these different cultures. That's the way to enjoy food. Think of all the people that lived before us that figured out how to use real ingredients and make them taste great. Let's benefit from their hard work. They did the hard work for us and we can sit back and enjoy what they did. And let's not eat the process stuff. Man, that sounds great to me. Check out Mark's book, The End of Craving, Recovering the Lost Wisdom of Eating Well. I don't think you will be sorry you did because it's just full of wonderful stories and helping you fall in love with food again. It sounds like a wonderful, delicious idea. So thank you for writing the book and thank you for sharing with us today, Mark. Oh, thanks for having me. Really enjoyed the discussion. And thank you for listening to the Next Simple Step podcast. Hopefully you got some ideas about your health and wellness, and this has been helpful to you. If you'd like to speak with someone about getting your nutrition into alignment and weight loss, 
Coach Angela is available through the Ethos Radio app. If you have the app, you can download it on Apple or Android and actually reach out for a free discovery coaching call with Coach Angela right in the app. Just click on the menu and you can do that there or check out the Fit Life with Angela podcast on Ethos. I'll talk to you next time on the next Simple Step podcast. 